0: letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 3. One of the Reformation truths was justification by faith. It's very simple, but the gospel is very simple in some way. And so we're going to look at that tonight in the light of Romans 3 and other parts of scripture as well. We're going to read Romans 3 in such a way uh, that um, we're going to also pray partly through chapter 3, because sometimes we can read this and say, no one's righteous and so forth, and kind of, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, But we're going to make this an understanding that God is saying this to us. No one is righteous. And that's going to draw us, in some sense, to our knees to say, Lord, have mercy. So before we open God's word, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the simple truth of the gospel. And as we hear that again tonight, we pray, Lord, that we may stand in awe of your grace and the simplicity of the message that's there in Scripture. Help us to be real about who we are and about who Jesus is and about what Jesus has done. And being real, we pray, O oh Lord, that we may understand your grace and then live out of that in our daily lives, reflecting Jesus all the more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 3. We're going to read verses 10, 11, and 12, and then we're going to sing a prayer. Jews and Gentiles are all alike under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Thank um. you. before their eyes. Verse 19 Now we know that whatever the law says it says to those who are under law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law rather through the law we become conscious of sin this is the solution, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that observing, of observing the law? No, but on that of Faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith faith, apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I celebrated an anniversary a little over a week ago. I didn't think of it, but my family reminded me of it. It was 38 years ago, October 18, 1981, that I was ordained to the ministry of the word and the sacraments in the Christian Reformed Church. It has been 38 years, I can't believe it, but it has been 38 years that I've had the privilege of proclaiming the gospel and administering the sacraments. And I get to do both tonight. Believe me, it's a privilege and it's quite a responsibility now, I'm under no illusions that over all those years, people remember every single word I have ever said. I don't even remember what I have all said. But there's a couple things that I've tried to do over all those years. The one thing that I've tried, consciously tried to do is to make people understand something about grace. And certainly for me, throughout my ministry, the words of Isaiah 40 have been important as I've made sermon after sermon, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort my people. It's been one of the watchwords of my ministry but only you can judge whether or not that message has come through. Secondly, as I preached, I've also tried to do so from a Reformed perspective. And I suspect that you probably would not have expected anything else, because I was ordained to serve in a Reformed denomination. And that's been important to me, as I trust it also is important to you, because after all, we're part of a denomination that has its roots in the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s. And many of the principles of the Reformation continue to be important uh, even today, some 500 years later. So this evening, in the light of the upcoming Reformation Day, and in the light of the Sacrament of Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate in a bit, I want to once again touch on one of the major points of the Reformation proclaimed by such Reformers as John Calvin and Martin Luther, namely that very, actually very simple, biblical idea that it is by grace through faith that we are saved. As Paul writes in verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And I want to touch on it again, I still have the opportunity to do so, Because it's a biblical teaching that people, even today, continue to have difficulties with. Now, as we consider the principle taught by the book of Romans, we must first need to be reminded of the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is this it's very simple God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That's the gospel. That son, namely Jesus, was perfectly obedient to the Father in that he came to this earth, became like us in every way, except that he didn't sin. He walked among us. He tabernacled among us. And then he suffered on the cross, and he died on the cross. But the gospel doesn't end there, because he rose again from the dead, winning the great victory. That's the wonderful gospel. That's the great good news I've had the privilege to proclaim for all these years. And that's what we commemorate and celebrate every time we come to the Lord's table. Now, why is this good news, word gospel, good news? What's the big deal about this news? But remember, we just read from Romans 3, verses 9 and following. Those are all quotes from the Old Testament. They paint a rather bleak picture, to say the least, of the human race. They paint a rather bleak picture of what happened once the human race rebelled against the Lord. Now, often when we think of fallen and evil people, our thoughts may go to such people as those arrested for trafficking, 39 people in the back of a truck, in England where all 39 were found dead. Or maybe our thoughts go to the two young men charged with the stabbing death of a 14-year-old student in Hamilton. Or our thoughts go to people like the man who was charged with a killing his four family members by slitting their throats in, in, uh, in July, this past July in Markham. Or maybe to the man who took his truck and killed 10 people and wounded 15 others on Yonge Street in <coughs> April of 2018. Maybe we think about gangs in Mexico who have killed so many, or groups like ISIS. You know, when such people are captured or when we think about such people, then it's interesting to listen to the language that some use, you know, like string them up, lock them up, throw away the key. Some suggest maybe they should just go ahead and rot in hell. Now, when we see some of the horrendous crimes that folks commit, Perhaps we might have sympathies with those kind of judgmental statements. But we just read Romans 3, and we need to be really careful with our judgments, because there we discover that we are absolutely no different. Sure, we may not be criminals in charge for the breaking of a specific civic law and therefore subject to condemnation in a civic court of law, But in the light of God's law, we are no better. We're all criminals. We're all subject to condemnation, not in an earthly jail with limits on our sentence, (laughs) perhaps for all eternity. And if there's anything that ought to scare us on this Halloween, it's reading Romans 3. There is no one righteous, not even one, really. The picture is bleak and scary and dark and all the rest, hence the prayer. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy upon me. So what's the way out? What's the answer to to such darkness and such misery? We've been given the answer. We've already heard the answer. It's the good news. God gave his son. God sent Jesus, The solution to the misery that we are in is God sending Jesus. Now did you notice I didn't say anything about us doing anything. God does not tell us to pay so much money or to say so many prayers or to believe hard enough or even to come to church so many times a year or per month or per week. He doesn't even tell us to live normally, Nor morally decent lives in order to make that message of Christ ours. The way out of the darkness, the way out of our misery doesn't involve any sort of confidence in our own abilities to do anything and for good reason, we can't. Because the biblical testimony is we're dead in our sins and dead people really can't do much. So what's the way out of our darkness and condemnation? Christ. Christ alone. How are we made righteous? How are we made right in our relationship with the Father? Righteousness comes from God. Righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, says Romans 3:21. Being made right with God so that there is now no condemnation comes through the completed work of Christ not through anything that you or I may be able to do or say. It's interesting. That's what the Philippian jailer learned in Acts 16. He was guarding the missionaries Paul and Silas who had been thrown into prison because of a number of trumped-up charges. And then while in prison, there was that earthquake and all the prisoners were freed. And thinking that all the prisoners had escaped, the jailer pulled his sword to take his own life rather than face the wrath of his superiors seeing what he was about to do, Paul stopped him and, and told him, hey, none of the prisoners have escaped. There's no need for you to end your life. And the Philippian, who had probably heard the apostles singing in their jail cells, then asked a question that's been repeated over and over again by millions of people. What must I do to be saved? What must I do do. The church over the years seems to have picked up on that word do and made it an emphasis. What must I do? That's a good word for Western culture. We, we love it because we're a people who love to do, and we're a people who are defined by what we do. And in response to the Philippian jailer, Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Again, it's almost like he made it a work. Do something, believe. But what Paul really was doing, it seems to me, was simply pointing the jailer to Jesus, who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. And it all sounds so easy, but it really is rather simple. So simple as a matter of fact, that it's in danger of being misunderstood or its importance underestimated. When it comes right down to basics, Christianity is very, very straightforward. Christ alone. Michael Horton in his book, Putting Amazing Back into Grace, suggests that the Reformation emphasis on faith alone has been eroded over the years. And he's had, he has some difficulty with modern-day Christianity that, that tends to put so much emphasis on the personal decision to accept Jesus. He writes, quote, Most of the sermons I heard as a child preached faith, not Christ. What the constant call for people to believe, to make a decision he noted tends to do is make an idol out of faith. And then he uses this interesting analogy. He said, it's like your friend coming to you with the news that he's in love. Love, he muses, is many a splendid thing. And then Horton continues for 20 minutes. Then he rhapsodizes about the magnificence of love while only making passing references to the girlfriend. And then he asks, would it not be at least, would it not be at least a possibility to surmise from this that he's more enchanted with with falling in love than with the girl? And then he goes on and he suggests that this can easily become our problem with our faith in the Lord. He says, obsession with the act of faith replaces the centrality of the object of faith, Jesus Christ. As having love can replace one's fascination with his girlfriend, so having faith, the act, can push Christ himself, the object, out of the picture. Stop looking to faith and start looking to Christ. That looking to Christ, says Horton, after all, is faith. What must we do to be saved? Asked the jailer. Look to Jesus. Receive the gift of righteousness apart from the law that comes from him. It's really quite simple and quite liberating. The church in the 1500s needed to hear this, and the church today needs to hear this statement again because we have a tendency to make faith so complicated. We add so much to it. However, when you tell people it's this simple, you can almost hear people begin to question, well, what's the catch? We all know that nothing comes free in this world. Everything has its price, get real. It cannot really be that easy. What do I have to do to gain eternal life? What do I have to give? Surely, as sophisticated as we are in this world and as technologically advanced as we are, such a simple requirement is not enough. There must be more. It's interesting that such a way of thinking is nothing new. In 2 Kings 5, there's this fascinating story about an Assyrian general by the name of Naaman. This great general was afflicted with leprosy, a terrible disease that meant almost certain death for him. And from a Jewish servant girl, he heard about a prophet in Israel who could heal him. And following that lead, he ended up at the home of Elisha. And Elisha told him through his servant that Naaman was to go to the Jordan River and wash himself seven times. And that was something the general couldn't stomach. He became angry, and he went away fully prepared to return to his own home as still a sick man. Naaman said, Are not Abna and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? In other words, how unsophisticated can you get? A mighty general like myself, washing myself seven times in the dirty water of a foreign place like this? Come on. There has to be more to it than that. I didn't even get to see the prophet. Nonetheless, the Lord asked him to simply accept his word and believe that he would be healed. And Amon felt it was but foolishness but the response of his servants is most interesting. They said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed? General, you'd probably give away half your command in order to be healed. You would give riches and lots of money in order to be healed. You would probably make you feel better and it would Be more in line with your rank and your status. But all you're asked to do is a simple thing. Dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. So why not? Why make something so difficult when it can be so simple? And those words apparently made a lot of sense to the general. He humbled himself and in simple obedience went to the Jordan River and and was cleansed. It's interesting, in Amon's case, the utter simplicity of what Elisha asked became an offense to him. He was offended that he had to wash in the Jordan, and that was all he had to do. Paul writes about this offense which the gospel brings in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23 when he says, Jews demand miraculous signs, Greek, Greeks look for wisdom but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And he continues in that passage as well as in the passage we read earlier from Romans 3 to talk about how the Jews felt that they had to add all sorts of good works, all sorts of legalism to the gospel in order to make it more acceptable. Meanwhile, the Greeks felt they had to add all sorts of philosophy and knowledge to their religion. Others would suggest that salvation comes through inner contemplation or becoming one with the universe. Still others would suggest that salvation is ours only when we truly experience and practice the special gifts of the Spirit. Unless you have a special blessing or so, you'll not really know the Lord. Unless you have this deep inner feeling, it's not real. Bible would have us know there's no special trick to making salvation ours. It doesn't require special inward feeling or an ability to get some amazing gift. gift. It doesn't require living, uh, knowing everything there is to know about the Bible. It doesn't even require exactly living right or as we have interpreted living right is. It doesn't require an ability to pay or anything of the sort. Rather, as Michael Horton suggests, stop looking to faith and all sorts of other musts and start looking to Christ. That looking to Christ, after all, is faith. And when we think of the truth of the scriptures, we ought to note that even the faith we have is a gift from God. We always need to recognize that we do not somehow, in any way, shape, or form, save ourselves. A Christian can never pat him or herself on the back and give self-congratulations concerning an ability to believe or just make some good choices in life. While in life, wow, I, I, I made the right choice for Christ. No, it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves in any ways. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, writes Paul in Ephesians 2. The Belgian confession that we're going to confess in a little bit as we are at the table, one of our forms of unity says, But Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Jesus is the only ground of our salvation. Jews and Gentiles either stumbled over such a simple gospel message or they took offense at it. What about you? Much of the world doesn't seem to understand very much about grace. Especially not God's grace. They figure there has to be a catch. But the good news is there is no catch. Look to Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness, says article of the Belgian Confession. And faith is the instrument that keeps us in communion with him and all his benefits. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus, our Lord. To God be the glory. Amen. Father in heaven, the gospel is so simple, really. It's not complicated. Somehow we've managed to make a lot of things very complicated in this world and in the Christian faith and in the church. Forgive us for that. And help us, Lord, to be focused on the truth and on you. And help us to seek Jesus. And now as we're about to go to the table of the Lord, we pray, O oh Lord, that we may see Christ and him alone and that we may leave this place encouraged and giving you the glory and giving you the praise for your amazing, marvelous grace. And then, Lord, we pray that we may take that and that we may live out of that, that we then may want to serve you all the more and all the closer and all the more dearly so that our lives reflect your grace and your love. Hear our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.